Hello, I'm Genevieve Ragu and welcome to How Did You Get Into Opera, a brand new podcast recorded during an unprecedented year, 2020, where one repercussion of COVID-19 was that the theatres and the concert halls had to close. In each episode of this podcast, I'll be talking to a different person who works in opera to find out more about the impact of this global pandemic on their lives, how they've been staying creative in lockdown, and what it was that got them into opera in the first place. We're in June 2020. What a year it's been so far. I'm Genevieve Ragu, the Artistic Director of Into Opera, and today my guest joining me remotely is the Northern Irish mezzo-soprano Carolyn Dobbin. Carolyn has played an eclectic range of characters on stage, queens and witches, wives and daughters, sons and seducers of the male and female variety. Carolyn's career has taken her across the UK, to Switzerland, Italy and even Dubai, She's worked on big classic operas with Irish National Opera and Welsh National Opera and brand new opera commissions with English National Opera, Mid Wales Opera, The Opera Story and The Royal Opera House. But not only that, Carolyn has also commissioned music herself as part of the Northern Irish Song Project that she launched in 2017 with the aim of collecting forgotten songs by Northern Irish composers and producing some new ones too. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Let's jump straight in, Carolyn, with the big question for this podcast. How did you get into opera? Well, now there's the question. Well, I started my life as an art teacher, art and design teacher, and it was really, I had some lessons with a lady down the road who taught me some lovely folk ballads and things like that and uh, she got something through the post which suggested that I go on a, on a summer course called Oxenford and I thought okay I'll, I'll do that and and I, and I went on this course for two weeks and I just couldn't believe that people were studying to be opera singers and classical singers I just I just thought everybody did it as a hobby I, I had no idea that there was a, a, even a possibility of a career in that direction because I was I was obviously in the world of teaching so how old were you roughly at that time? Oh gosh, uh, sort of 20s, mid-20s. So very early days. So yeah, it was it was really quite a, a totally different world for me that it, that had opened up. And in the year 2000, I maybe just the a few months before going to Oxenford, I went up to the Grand Opera House in Belfast and Welsh National Opera were putting on a performance of Carmen. And I'd never seen an opera before. And I think that's a great place to start. Actually, Carmen is one of the ones that I would recommend people go and see. And I was absolutely blown away with the singing and the acting and this production, which was just really so dramatic. And, and the music was sensational. I mean, you recognised tunes. I recognised tunes, even though I had never studied any any opera. And it just had such a huge impact on me. And that's then, of course, when I went to on the summer course, it, it was even more exciting and to know that people were, were studying and how to do that and how to actually go about becoming an opera singer. Uh, so after that course, I applied to the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama and I was accepted onto the opera course. But there's another little story in there because the opera that I went to see 
production of Karma that I went to see in Belfast was the same production that I was in 10 years later in 2010. And, and I was singing the role of Mercedes in that and understudying Carmen. And it was, I couldn't believe the moment when I suddenly realized this is the actual opera that I saw 10 years ago. And it was quite emotional. I got a little bit teary, I have to say. And, uh, it was just one of those moments. I thought, this is one that had such an impact on me 10 years ago. And here I am in it. Wow. So was that actually a revival of the same production that you saw 10 years earlier as an audience member? who hadn't really thought that being an opera singer was even a kind of a full-time career, let alone a career at all. Uh, and then yeah. 10 years later, you're telling me you were, you were in that, that same production as a revival and understudying the leading role. Yes, that was, that's it. I, I, I know it was such a huge moment for me. <laughs> Goodness me, what, what a story. Yes. But before you went and actually did your formal training in opera in Scotland, you you had trained to be an art teacher. You'd done your degree. Yeah. You'd gone on to do your PGCE, and mm. you were working as a art and design teacher. Yes, I was indeed here in in Northern Ireland, and uh, and it was the strangest thing because uh, you know I, I I was very happy in that job. I enjoyed it. You know, I I enjoyed the, working with the kids, and it was always great fun. And every every lesson was different. But just when I saw this production and I went on the summer course, I just thought, no, there's there's something else I need to do here first. You know, there's something that's calling here. So I applied to the Royal Scottish Academy and I got into the to the opera course, as I said, to do my master's. And uh, yeah, I had so much to learn. I had no idea. I didn't know how much I didn't know, if that makes any sense. Um, course, so it was yeah. a huge learning curve for me when I, I was thrown in at the deep end. I really was because I had very few languages and I couldn't read music very well. And it was so, so much that I had to learn. Um, it was quite a stressful year or two. I think I spent most of it in tears. <laughs> but at the same time, I loved it. You know, um, I just wanted to keep trying to do my best at that stage and trying to keep my head above water. <laughs> So it really was Carmen's fault, you know, her luring us in as she does so many. Yes, I'd like to have a word with her. (laughs) (laughs) But you must have been aware that you had this voice because to go from a completely different profession to Mm. suddenly watching a production, thinking, oh, wow, that that would be a great career. And then actually getting in to a fantastic place to study. You must have already had a voice there that you were aware of. Yes, I mean, over the years, people have always said to me, oh, you've got a lovely voice. But, you know, I, I, I didn't know that you could do anything with that. You know, I just, so I treated it as a hobby. I, I, I sang in a girls' choir, I sang in the church choir, and, and both the conductors said, used to push music in my direction, but little ballads and things like that. And one of them suggested that I take some lessons with, with this lady that lived quite close by. And I, and I did. And again, I learned a few ballads and, and things like that. So that's, that was my starting point, point, folk songs and ballads and, and, and some church music because I sang in the church choir. So uh, there was an element of, of that. Um, but it was not this church choir that everyone thinks of these days. It was a real sort of mixture of uh, people almost about to die because you know, they're all about 90 years old. And then there was me in the front row, the youngest thing. I was about, you know, eight years old or 10 years old. Uh, and that was it. And uh, But I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed singing together with everyone and, you know, and trying to do the harmonies because I always love to sing the alto part too and... Yeah, that, that's how it all started, really, just with people saying and encouraging me. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't believe them half the time, but I kind of just 
thought, yeah, well, that's nice of them to say. <laughs> and how difficult a decision was it then for you to make to leave this profession that you had worked and trained for and to take a kind of a leap of faith and go and try something else? Yeah. Well, I had an amazing headmaster actually at the time and I went to him and he said to me, well, why don't you take a two year sabbatical? So I did. So he left my job open for me while I went to study at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. And I was I was very lucky, but I did have to let them know at the start of the second year whether or not I, I was going to come back. And that was a traumatic day. <laughs> Because uh, I just thought, okay, I'm going to do it. Uh, I don't think I can go back now that I've started this wonderful journey and, and meeting so many creative and fabulous people along the road and uh, inspirational people. Uh, I just didn't think I could go backwards. I had to keep going forwards. What hooked you in? Oh, it was just it was just the music first and foremost. Uh, my singing teacher Pat McMahon at the time was just so amazing and patient. And it was just there was various people along the road who who helped and encouraged me. There was Hester Dixon, who was actually the the, the mother of uh, Malcolm Martineau. She was my pianist at the company at the college. She played with me on all the competitions that we did, and she was amazing. And there was Tim Dean, who ran the opera school, and they all they all encouraged me along along the way. And uh, I'm forever grateful for that because there was times where I was just like, what am I doing here? <laughs> Because everyone just knew so much more than I had because they had obviously done their degrees in music and been studying it for three or four years before before I had. Uh, but I was trying to slot it all into a year and a half, two years, you know. It takes so much courage, I think, to, to pivot and try and do something different. And I mean, that's very resonant now, I think, to so mm -hmm. many people because there are so many people now who are considering those changing the career, uh, sometimes changing the career of a lifetime and... Mm -hmm. You know, or we're seeing businesses, as I said, pivoting and, and changing what they produce and how they produce it. And mm -hmm. and so it is really interesting to hear, I think, those stories and those mm -hmm. success stories when people have taken that courage and found that resolve to to take that leap of faith and yeah. make those changes. Absolutely. Um, but is there anything you miss about that lifestyle, that other life? Yes, of course. I mean, I miss the, the regular salary. <laughs> I miss the the, the the structure of a day that you knew when you could do things that, you know, that there was a, it, the day was very structured. I mean, it was, I was run by bells, you know, <laughs> the end of the lesson, the bell would go off. That's the end, you know. So the whole day was structured like that. Uh, whereas now I have to structure that myself. So I have to be very self-disciplined. I was going to ask you, yeah, how, how would you describe in contrast then? the life of an opera singer and I mean in an average year <laughs> shall we say pre-2020 oh gosh well I, I you really do have to sort your your day out you know I, I tend to, to write lists the night before of what I'm going what I have to do the next day and whether it's you know I still have a certain structure. You get up in the morning, you maybe do a bit of exercise or whatever and do the admin in the morning a little bit. But then I, you have to study a role. I like to do all the study in the morning because I don't like to sing that much in the morning being a met, so I like to sing in the afternoons. <laughs> and I still, I tried to do, I tried to keep doing that all my life. But anyway, so in the afternoons then I would sing and that's when you would start to work on the technical side of things. But the morning would be pr primarily for, for learning a role or working on the languages, the translation, and, and so on but that's a basic 
overview. That's very, very simplified version. That, of course, is, is not when you're in rehearsal itself. No, uh, that's not. That's when I'm on my own, really, during the day. And when I'm in rehearsals, it's, it's very different. Your, your day would start about 10 o'clock in the morning. Rehearsals would start roughly 10 o'clock. You'd have a break for lunch for about an hour. And then you'd continue rehearsing in the afternoon until 5.30 or so. But again, that would be different if, if I was living. When I was living in Switzerland, we had a completely different uh, regime there again because you'd rehearse in the morning you'd have the afternoons free and then in the evening you would have either have a performance of an opera uh, or you'd be in rehearsals so it depended on what you were involved in. Yeah I mean when I worked in Spain I remember we had these great siestas in the middle of the day so we could just have this break this lovely long lunch and we'd just go back in the evening and as a night owl I definitely appreciated that. <laughs> um <laughs> So obviously being an opera singer and when you are in that rehearsal environment, that rehearsal could be near where you live. It could be in a completely different country. The life of an opera singer is not bound to one place, is it? And you've travelled all over the place with your work, (laughs) including you've just mentioned Switzerland. What took you out there? You were there for two years? I was, yes. I was on uh, on a fest position, which is when you are attached to an opera house uh, as a soloist and you then do various roles throughout the year. Um, some you could be doing at the same time. Uh, so one night you might be performing, uh, say, Carmen, and the next night performing uh, Penelope in The Return of Ulysses. So, again, you just it just varied so much. And I find it quite difficult at times because sometimes I'd be singing quite a high role and then the next night I might be singing a very low role. And you just, and mentally, the roles could vary so hugely as well. So, for example, Carmen, you know, it's quite feisty and fun or whatever, but then Penelope is quite deep and thoughtful and and sincere. And uh, so there's, you know, there's quite a variety of of things going on. You had to really sort of compartmentalise roles to a certain extent, you know, whether it's Carmen or Penelope in Return of Ulysses, you've just, you've got to just try and make sure you you don't mix the two in any way with either technically or as a character. I mean, it sounds, it sounds exhausting, but what an amazing, amazing time you must have had out there and what a learning experience. That's exactly what it was. It was a huge learning experience for me. Um, because up until that point, I'd been doing sort of smallish, medium roles in, in, in the bigger houses. And I really wanted to get my teeth into some bigger roles. And, and that was my sole aim for going out there and trying that out. So I got to do some really great roles. Yeah, and live in Switzerland. Yes, and it was a stunning place to live for two years. The air was so clean. The mountains were all around. The, the lake was in front of the, the theatre. Uh, yes, it was, it was really beautiful. So you were definitely enjoying this career as an opera singer which you then realised had did exist and you were living it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, so opera singers travel and as part of that opportunity to really travel with the work, you get to perform in some rather amazing venues, don't you? Do you think you could paint the picture and tell us about some of the, the most memorable venues you've performed in and what that was like? Just one at the top of my head right now was... I'd never been to the Albert Hall before in my life. I'd never actually been to see anything there, I'm ashamed to say. But when we were, I was in London for living there for about a year or two, they'd asked me to sing Messiah there. And I remember for the first time stepping out onto the stage and just going, oh my goodness. Uh, but it, that was 
a great experience. But uh, again, it was just such a huge, overwhelming experience. There's this huge round circle, people all the way around you. And, uh, and we were actually performing in the middle. Uh, so that was, uh, that was beautiful. What a beautiful building that is. That sounds epic. And am I right in thinking that you have also had a performance at Buckingham Palace? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, because I was an associate artist at Welsh National Opera for a year in 2010 to 11, I was asked to to sing some Wagner and we were to prepare the Rhine Maidens and we were singing along with Sabrin Terfel, who's just a wonderful singer. Uh, And yeah, we had to perform for... Prince Charles, he was there, and it was in it was in Buckingham Palace throne room. Oh, what's it like? It, 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 beautiful. I mean, as you would imagine, really beautiful. The only thing, it had carpet, so it wasn't so nice to sing there. <laughs> it was it was okay though. It didn't deaden the sound too much, but beautiful, beautiful experience. And Carolyn, you've performed such a variety of roles on stage. I think that's safe to say. And when I last saw you, which I think was end of last year when you worked with Into Opera, you were about to then go into rehearsal for Irish National Operas Hansel and Gretel. So I have to ask, how did it go? Oh, you know, we had such great fun doing that production. Uh, it was it was actually directed by the Lovets, who have a Lovett Theatre in, in Dublin. They're primarily theatre for 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 children, and it's a straight theatre as well. Not opera. It's the first time they've ever directed an opera before. Um, but they were a husband and wife team. And Marian was the, she was the one that had the vision and the overall view of everything. And then Louis, who's normally an actor, they brought the best out in The Witch, I think. You know, she was, they wanted a very glamorous witch, but they wanted also a very strange witch. So I had to do some very unusual things. And then towards the end, I'd come out like Nigella, a deranged Nigella Lawson with my trolley of knives. <laughs> so to be clear, you played the witch in oh, yes. Hansel and Gretel. Yes. And you played a deranged version of the witch that was like Nigella Lawson <laughs> yeah deranged Nigella Lawson yeah because of the 1950s style you know sort of very glam and then suddenly I'd be completely go into this, this this crazy person would come out in the middle of it all but yeah I had to do some drumming of pots and, and that was just uh, I, I didn't know I could drum I mean who knew <laughs> but it seemed to go down very well every night and uh, yeah that was that was a great great production and uh, and a great team great cast well, I did see a number of the reviews when they came out and the Bach oh, track dear. one really struck me, which uh, said, Carolyn Dobbins' witch emphasised the fun over the sinister with brilliant comic effect. Coy and coquettish, she sang mincingly of Roast Child. I've got to love it. I mean, I, I've got to ask, how do you prepare for a character like that, Carolyn? <laughs> Well, I don't think you really can. I think you just have to go in pretty much open-minded to what the directors want. Um, maybe have a few things up your sleeve, you know, once you see the the way things are going and uh, just put them out there someday and they go, yeah, we like that. Or they might go, no, I don't like that. So it's it's great to try things out. That's what the rehearsal room is for and the rehearsal space is for. So I tried lots and lots of different things and uh, we got rid of some, but we kept a few elements, which was, uh, which was great. So you had a chance to really play with the character in the rehearsal oh. room to, to push the boundaries of, of yeah. what this witch is, because, you know, that, that review says, you know, the fun over the sinister, I suppose <laughs> that witch 
you could do it the other way around to put the sinister over the fun. But for this production, it sounds like they were going for the fun. They were going for the comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they were aware that there might be a lot more children coming in to watch this as well. I mean, that's not to say that I wasn't sinister, because certainly I remember when we went to Letterkenny, which was the final show, this mother, after the show, this mother said to the children, oh, look, there's the witch over there. Why don't you get your photograph taken with the witch? And the kids just stood there and shook their heads and went, no, we're scared. (laughs) They didn't want to come near me there, because obviously there's a few faces that I pulled that I've got a very flexible face and I can pull all sorts of really strange things, do strange things with my jaw and stuff. And uh, I think... I wish we could show this on the podcast. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So the way they did the lighting made it even more, look even worse really than it was. Uh, So I think I did scare a few, but they were only flashes of that that came out occasionally. (laughs) I mean, this, you know, creating the role of a witch, you know, that's a very, maybe an extreme example, but um, you have had to create such a number of characters do you have a process for that I mean how how do Mm. you go about preparing the different characters that you're invited to play on stage is there a process for me I I look to see if is this a role from history for example, you know, is, is, is this has this opera been based on a, a book or a scene, a part of history? For example, um, Penelope, you know, in The Return of Ulysses, um, instead of preparing and, and reading the whole of the Iliad, I just, I, somebody pointed me in the direction of a lovely book called The Penelope Aid, written by Margaret Atwood. And it was just wonderful because it just focused on Penelope and her character. It included songs and letters and poems. Um, And she did so much research to find out a little bit more about her personality. And it was just eye-opening for me. It gave me so much more depth to the character. So that's the kind of thing I do. I try to find a book that's maybe historically important uh, or associated with this character, if that's the case. I read the text, obviously, through to see what's involved, what the person says and how they say it. And then I try to think of maybe people in my own life that I know that I could maybe base it on. You know, my mum had five sisters and they're all a bit mad. And uh, so they had little quirky things. And I find myself doing some facial expressions that I know that they have done in the past. Uh, And also I I watch a lot of films and I I watch the way actors behave. And I know that I've brought certainly some moments in from watching um, faces and the way they react. I've certainly brought those into operas at times. So I I draw on lots of different areas and then I bring a bit of myself in. I guess you have to, you know, what would, how would I react? I think, how would I react to somebody saying that to me? Uh, and then I also have to think of the historical context. Is this today or is this in the past? So then I have to adjust that as to how a person might react 100 years ago, 200 years ago to how they might react now. So what do you do if the opera is set 200 years ago, but the production that you're doing is being brought up to date into a contemporary setting? I think similar. I would still do the historical research into it. If it's modern, then that's fine. I I can put a lot more of myself and people that I know into the character because that's how they are today and how somebody would react today in a more casual way. Whereas if it's very period, you've got your costume to think about as well and how you sit down because you're you're going to be hemmed in with a a corset and a huge dress and how you move around and uh, everything would have been probably a little bit 
calmer and stiller and then they would be in a more modern setting perhaps so basically whatever the production there's a huge amount of research that a performer can do to prepare their role which could be text-based and involve a lot of reading but you can also get influences from from almost anywhere oh absolutely walking people walking down the street or listening into a conversation in a cafe behind and uh yeah just as simple as that really (laughs) and you just absorb it yeah, I just just take it all in and uh, and watch. Just I think it's important to what people watch. I love that. <laughs> I love how you have invented the perfect excuse to people watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so of course things have changed somewhat over recent months. I mean, did you even did you manage to complete the tour of Hansel and Gretel? We did actually. We finished our last show. I think it was the eighth of March. And there was all this talk about a lockdown possibly happening. So uh, so I was still in Northern Ireland at that point. And then uh, I heard on the grapevine that they were going to be locked down at the end of the week or the start of the following week. So I thought I better get on the ferry and get back to London so I could be with my husband just in case one of us got sick and we'd have each other to look after one another, if that makes sense. And did you then dare I ask, go on to face a number of cancellations for this summer? Oh, absolutely, yes. Unfortunately, a lot of things were cancelled. Uh, I was meant to be doing my first Valkyrie, Sigruna, in uh, in the, the Wagner's opera, Die Valkyrie. And and who was where was that going to be? That was going to be at Longborough Festival, Opera Festival. So that was a shame. That, that was meant to start in April, but hopefully it's postponed. And then there was a couple of concerts I was meant to do, one in Dublin in the concert hall there with the priests. The three priests are very famous people over here, by the way. Then a recital with some of my Northern Irish songs and paintings, which was meant to be in London. Uh, so things like that have been cancelled. So quite a bit of work and your lockdown has really been in London. What's it been like living in the capital at this time? Well, very, very strange because what struck me the most was the silence. There was no planes flying overhead. There was very few cars on the street, if any. And so people were actually walking up the middle of the road. And what I noticed most of all was the, the, the cleanliness of the air it really had become so clean because of the lack of pollution and and bright there's a great lightness in the sky and the air uh so that that struck me first and foremost and then of course i think nature had breathing space too and it seemed to take over a little bit or or start earlier than it normally did maybe also the weather was was better i don't know but in my mind it seemed to have some breathing space but it was a lovely thing to experience actually all that time seeing London from a completely different perspective. And during that time, you you have, you know, you managed to stay creative. You've been doing a <laughs> lot of incredible painting, haven't you? Yes. I mean, well, for the first week or two, like everybody else, I, I cleaned the house from top to bottom, you know, I sorted everything out. But it's not a big flat in London, so it didn't take too long. So, yeah, I just decided I'd, I'd, I'd get on with what I've been wanting to do for a while, which was a lot of paintings. And it was because I've been painting in a short space of time, I, I noticed my technique was developing much quicker than it normally would. And, and I was getting a bit more confident with it as well, because I was concentrating just on painting. And for some days, I would churn out two or three paintings, you know, in, in a day. And then other times, I would just take two days off because I just, I just didn't feel like doing it. And I did something else. But, but it was amazing to, I was painting things that I, I really missed. 
I was painting a lot of landscapes from home, um, seascapes, and uh, and then I was missing people from the industry. So I started to paint Anthony Negus, who was going to be our conductor for the Wagner Opera at Longborough, and then went on to Sir Brinterful, and then some friends and colleagues, Helena Dix and Tom Guthrie, just people that I, I've worked with that, you know, that I thought they would, uh, characterful people, actually, because uh, that's easier for me to paint. I paint, I love to paint people who are who really ooze charisma through every pore I, I find I find it easier I don't know why but uh, there's something I like to capture of their soul on the painting you know so <laughs> so I've been finding my voice on the canvas <laughs> wow so it's been a combination of, of these characterful portraits and then these landscapes which transporting yourself back I suppose to places yes. that you yeah. love but by painting them Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm putting some of the, I mean, it's been very interesting to video some of the processes myself to actually see what I do. So I've been videoing, starting from scratch, painting from scratch and, and the whole process right through to the end and then speeding that video up. And that's been really interesting to watch. And then I've put them to music associated with the person that I'm painting. For example, Anthony Nikas, I put, of course, Wagner and Die Valkyrie, you know, to the to the paint, to the video. And then the one I did of Sobrinter was was him as Falstaff in Verdi's opera Falstaff and I put a little bit of the the music from that to to kind of go along with the process and it's it's, it's interesting and you're on TikTok <laughs> oh yes. everything I know I feel so very cool and trendy but I'm really not if somebody just said that's how you were able to add music to the video and I sort of I figured it out myself uh, probably doing a hundred things wrong but first but uh, that's how you learn I guess you you learn by making mistakes and you know I made plenty of those in the painting and in the music world so <laughs> <laughs> but that works now you're you know putting it up you're the mezzo who paints is that your that's yeah. your name isn't it on twitter on a uh, tiktok and if anyone does want to see your paintings where else can we see them there are some on my facebook page carolyn dobbin mezzo soprano contralto um there are also some just on uh i put some paintings just still paintings on uh, my website carolyndobbin.com and yes tiktok obviously and a few on Instagram. So you're, you're getting them out there on social media. It sounds like you're beginning to get some commissions as well. Um, going back to your roots. <laughs> I can't believe it. I've got neighbours and all sorts of people have asked me to do paintings for them. I've just finished a, a painting of a beach scene, which was uh, commissioned by one of my neighbours. He wanted this Australian beach painted for his wife, who is Australian and from that particular area. And he wanted this as a present. So that's been the most recent one. So painting sounds like it's been quite a comfort to you during this crazy time. Is is that is that right? I mean, how do you think it's helped you? Oh, it has. I mean, I don't know that the hours fly past when I'm painting. I just kind of go into my own little world and my own little bubble. And even when my husband comes in to ask, sometimes I, I don't hear him. You know, I just I'm just so totally absorbed. It, it's It's been very therapeutic. I've, I've really enjoyed producing something and doing something that that I can be a little bit proud of or it's it's just it's satisfying it's it's I find it really satisfying um but I enjoy it I enjoy painting people and I enjoy painting scenes and it's it just gives me great comfort I have to say and many landscapes you've painted are as you said of of Northern Ireland and your home Mm -hmm. um the places that have played a big part in your life and the places you're missing and your home is a very important part of your identity isn't it I'm especially thinking about your decision to 
develop the Northern Irish Song Project. Uh, I mean, where where did that all start? Where did that come from? It's been quite a journey. It has. I mean, thinking about it, that's actually where I started with folk songs and ballads by Northern Irish composers. That's what my first singing teacher that lived just down the road from me, that's what she introduced me to, to begin with. And it's almost like I've done full circle and I've come back to these pieces because some of them are fabulous pieces of work and not many of them have been recorded, if any, over the years. And Ian Burnside and myself were the first people to record Sir Hamilton Hearty's songs, Charles Wood songs. And I think there have been a recording of Joan Trimble, but she was from Enniskillen, and uh, Howard Ferguson, another wonderful composer born in Belfast. So uh, they're, they're so rich, they're so imaginative, and they they also do have a sort of... this almost Irish soundscape, if there's such a thing as a Celtic soundscape going through them. But also they have, uh, there are a lot of art songs, which which could very well pass for being Schumann or something as well, which were produced by um, Charles Wood. So uh, there's such a variety there. And I really wanted other people to hear those. That's why we recorded the first CD, which is called Calano, and that was with Delphian Records. And I was so thrilled that they came on board. And it's just the start of a huge project that I have. I've, I've collected and researched these songs. I've collected a lot of manuscripts, a lot of songs that were out of print, and a lot of songs that just simply weren't known about. And I've really wanted to highlight those in a big way. And I think other people have now sort of taken up the rain and run with it a little bit as well. Um, but we have more to produce. There's so many more beautiful gems to record in the old category of songs. But I've I've also got current composers living in Northern Ireland to write song cycles for me using texts by Northern Irish poets, whether that be current poets or old poets. I, I've left that entirely up to them. And it's it's been a wonderful project to, just to highlight all of this. And of course, I've done paintings to go along with these songs. <laughs> so it's, it's of this. course you have, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? <laughs> I know. Oh. So of <laughs> course, um, a, lot of, a lot of this music we can hear on, on the CD that was produced back yes. in 2018. What was that called again? Kalanu. Um, it's actually a, a, a Gaelic word. It's only one little Gaelic phrase that's in the whole of of, of the twenty five songs. But it, it's it's a lovely, beautiful one. It's from uh, it's one of the five folk songs that Howard Ferguson wrote. They're they're stunning little folk songs. In fact, if anybody wants to listen to something really light hearted, they are beautiful. Five Howard Ferguson folk songs, and there's one in it actually called "The Swan," and it's just beautiful and. It's about the River Ban, which is very close to where I am right now. And it's all about, it's, 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 it's worth a listen. Well, I've, I've got to confess, I think I've lost track of how many times I've listened to your CD now. So oh. I will say that it, it, you know, it certainly is very beautiful. And oh, um, if you're looking for something to listen to during this very strange time <laughs> that is going to make you feel quite peaceful and give you some time to, to think... Um, it's it's certainly a lovely way to escape with music. Yes, um, and so that's you know definitely one recommendation I'd given a heartbeat. But there's there's a lot there's a lot online at the moment, isn't there? A yes. lot of online performance, a lot of online streaming. But I mean, what do you miss most about live performance? Oh, I miss 
well, I miss the cult, my colleagues, and I miss, uh, I just miss, I miss music, making music. You know, I, we tried doing um, a few operas online, but it's, some, somebody would send you the, the accompaniment and then you try to sing with that accompaniment. This, but there's not that same chemistry, that same ebb and flow that you can create out of nothing. Sometimes you just create special moments with a pianist there and then. And I, I, I just miss that sort of making of music. You can try and manufacture it in other ways, of course, but ultimately it's that spontaneity that I really miss. And just the ultimate, that feeling of being on stage and just performing with an orchestra, singing over, you know, into the audiences and their, and their immediate reaction. I, I miss that too. You know, if they, they, they find something funny that I love that, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the whole atmosphere, but I can understand why it's not going back so soon, but, uh, but it's hard. It's hard to, to fill that gap. But hoping and fingers very tightly crossed that, that we are back um, sooner than it's looking like at the moment. Are there any particular projects that you are particularly hoping will happen soon that you're looking forward to? Yes, well, I'm I'm, I'm hoping that the Wagner will will be brought back next year. And that's at Longborough. Yeah, Longborough. Yes. Uh, so that's that. And then all the those concerts that that have been rescheduled for the autumn or for Christmas. And um, so I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that they will go ahead now. And so those are the two main things that I'm I'm really looking forward to. You know, it's not Christmas without music, is it? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about Christmas. It's the summer. I know. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Finally, Carolyn, the question that I'm asking every guest for this podcast. If you were told that you had to spend lockdown in isolation with a character from any opera, who would you choose? Who would you choose to spend that time with and why? Gosh, I find that so hard because, I mean, people like Dorabella and Fiordaligi from Cosi Fantuti, I think they would drive me mad after about five minutes because they'd just be like, how do you not know those guys aren't the, aren't, aren't the original boyfriends? If you know the story from, from Cosi Fantuti, then that's, that's the case. But I find it very difficult to say that I'd want to be with one particular person. But my favourite opera is Meistersinger from Nuremberg. So maybe Hans Sachs from that, because I just I just love the bass baritone voice. So anyone that, that plays that role could just come and sing it to me in the kitchen and I'd be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> on repeat for the whole of lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Carolyn, thank you so much. It's, it's always so lovely chatting to you. You're, oh. uh, without a doubt, one of the kindest and most generous women I know working in opera. So... Um, chatting today it's been very special I know there are many people out there who would agree with me that we're hoping to see a lot more artwork from you very soon and very much looking forward to seeing what you produce so please keep painting but of course please keep singing you know that is what we really really need right now yes uh, however difficult this time might be I will I will we've been having I've been having singing lessons online which is difficult but at least it's a start so um the fingers crossed things will get up and running again and it's just an absolute pleasure to to speak to you again today Genevieve you you're just such a you're such a one of these forerunners in this opera world you're striving through there and breaking down barriers and I love that you're just doing a wonderful <laughs> job Oh Karen what did I say one of the kindest and most generous women I know in this industry <laughs> Karen and Dobbin, thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Into Opera and hosted by the charity's artistic director, Genevieve Ragu. 
If you would like to make a donation to support Into Opera at this challenging time, head over to our website, into-opera.org.uk, where you'll be able to find our COVID-19 appeal, along with more information about our work and its long-lasting impact. <laughs>